0: Back to the extras. My name is Jack. My name is Peter. Good to be with you here all year. Good to be with you here again, Peter. This is is round two for us, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, good to be back. We had had a good time last time. Uh, Keen to get back into it as we get into a new series as well. So, if you're listening, last time we wrapped up our vision month. Last week we've been spending the first part of this year thinking about uh, what we are seeking to do as a church and bringing our hearts into line with God's. It's been a wonderful time. We started something new in the Bible last Sunday. Peter, for those who may need a reminder, uh, what were we having a look at as we came to the Scriptures for our new series?
1: Jonah, Book of Jonah. Jonah, yes. That's yeah. right, and I was all geared up, Jack, to hear what you had to say about it, and then...
0: Yeah, and I didn't have anything to say in the end, yeah. Um, many of you would have heard that on Sunday, I'm sure, but yeah, I was struck down with a, a crippling plague on, on Saturday and, and didn't make it to church on Sunday, very sadly. It wasn't COVID. I feel like I've spent the last three days just telling everyone it wasn't COVID. I've had negative rats, I've had negative PCR. I'm in the office now and I'm allowed to be here just, just in case anyone's wondering. Yeah. I to be honest, I don't really know what happened in the end. I the best theory we've had is that we were doing a pretty major mold cleanup after the big damp what we had last week and the symptoms I had I think correspond to some kind of mold poisoning. So there you go.
1: Never clean your house is the lesson to take home from Yeah, that.
0: exactly. That was my first mistake, clearly, yes. Well, Peter, you did get into Jonah 1 for us, and I, I'm very sad that I missed out on preaching because it's a wonderful part of the Bible. Can you remind us what are some of the things that we see coming out of the text?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Jonah is a really surprising book, and the surprises come right out of the gate. God commissions Jonah as a prophet, to go and preach, to Nineveh, its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah doesn't want a bar of it. Jonah mm. runs for the hills. He runs for Tarshish. He won't obey the Lord. But God is the inescapable God. You can't get away from God. Jonah tries very hard. He can't do it. And we spend a little bit of time thinking about what it means not to be able to get away from God. And particularly that we can't get out of the reach of God's mercy. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's such a good chapter. One of the lines I would have used if I got to preach it was, uh, you can't run and you can't hide. I think that's the kind of thing that Jonah putting before us, yeah. You're right, yeah. Inescapable God. Wonderful picture. Like, you know, challenging picture, but wonderful in the end, yeah. Very helpful. Mm. We've had a lot of people texting in some, some great questions, grappling with what's going on in this chapter, so we'll get into some of those. A uh, few things to, I guess, clarify, particularly some of the things that you said, Peter. So uh, question number one, can you clarify what you meant by Jonah being a pagan? Isn't he a believer who was sinful and failed to trust God rather than someone who doesn't believe at all?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the categories we're working with here are Israelite and non-Israelite or mm. or pagan. Uh, so, yes, of course, he's an Israelite, and he says as much, doesn't he? He's very proud of it. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven. He tells you that. Mm. Uh, the point that I was looking to make was really just that his actual actions align much better with what the sailors think about God, that there are many gods and each god has its own little jurisdiction. Mm. His actions align much better than that. He thinks you can run away from God by getting on a boat yeah. than with the affirmation that he worships the Lord, the true God, the God of Israel, who made the sea and the dry land and who is, of course, the inescapable God. So he, he, he's not a pagan, but he acts like one.
0: Yeah, his, his walk doesn't come close to matching his talk in that regard which I think is quite striking yeah you have this picture he's you know the theologically orthodox like says all the right things and you just look at his life and it's just completely different to what he says and then I think in that there's some kind of warning for us as well you know when our, our creed doesn't match what we do that's that's a serious issue yeah <laughs> worshipping God's not just this intellectual thing it's what we do that that matters as well yeah definitely yeah interesting All right, we'll keep going on. Another one, uh, about casting lots, this is what the sailors do, verse 7, when they want to find out, you know, who does cause a storm, all of that. Uh, Someone's asked, if casting lots counts as divination, shouldn't it be banned in Israel? The Israelites seem to do it all the time, though. Are we supposed to see that action as sinful?
1: Yeah. Well, casting lots is a kind of divination, and I think as the questioner rightly points out, there are lots of instances... In the Old Testament where God says, look, you guys are practicing divination. Don't do it. I don't like it. Mm. Casting lots uh, refers to this kind of one sanctioned version of divination that God gives to his people. It has to do with these things called urim and thummim. Mm. You can go look them up in Exodus 28. Uh Fair warning, there is not enough detail to work out what is going on. (laughs) Yeah, we don't
0: know what these things are, but yeah, they're there. It takes
1: a lot of reading between the lines. It seems Mm. to be a way to ask the Lord, the Lord's God-given way of asking the Lord a yes-no question Mm. to find out his will. So we see it happening a lot in the books of Samuel, for example.
0: Yeah.
1: The key difference is probably the same mechanic, you know, a way of... um, probably throwing an object on the ground and Mm. two objects and if they come up in certain combination that means yes or no the difference is not in the practice but in where it's directed yeah are they inquiring of the gods or are they asking the lord according to the means he's provided for them what the lord's will is
0: Mm. yeah and i guess the question of like is it right or wrong it's just kind of not the question that's on view in journal one so you have these pagan sailors who have practising divination by casting lots, and that's sort of exactly what you'd expect of people who, you know, worship many gods in this polytheistic world. And yet, it seems interesting that God, the one true living God, chooses to work through this, you know, pagan practice, and the lot falls on Jonah. Like, in a, in a passage where God sends the storm and God sends the fish, like, it's very clearly God's the one who's pulling the strings. And at this moment, he chooses to use that practice, which, you know, was calling on other gods, he chooses to work through it to actually reveal his truth, which... It's interesting, like you can see the sailors are a bit of a journey through the chapter, right? They end up, you know, afraid, and finally they fear the Lord and they sacrifice to him. But yeah, yeah, I find it striking that God works through that in that moment, yeah.
1: That's right, and I guess it's a little reminder, isn't it, that even if they're appealing to what we might call chance, well, there is no such thing as chance, mm. because God determines the lot, where yeah. it falls. I believe there's a proverb to that effect, but I have no idea where it is.
0: I think it's 1633. You can oh, look that Jack, up. and well done. Uh, it, Comes up all the time in the whole predestination discussion, which we'll get to later as well. It's coming up later too. Um, uh, stay tuned. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can you can check fact check that if you want. Look it up. If I was wrong, you can put in a connect card and remind me. That'd be great. All right, uh, we're going to keep going there. Uh, third question today: Did Jonah perhaps ask the sailors to throw him overboard because he wanted to test God, or he knew God would save him, or is it as you said, Peter, that Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh?
1: Yeah, well, I'm grateful for the question because it gives me the chance to kind of reiterate. I tried to frame this as a question. Is it the case that Jonah would rather die than Mm -hmm. obey God? I purposely chose to frame it that way as a question because, strictly speaking, we're just not told. Uh, Chuck me in the sea, he says, but he doesn't explain to us what he's thinking. And I'm actually convinced that the author of the book of Jonah is extremely skilled storyteller mm. and is deliberately withholding bits of information from us there's a big reveal coming up later in the book about exactly what is going through Jonah's mind but he wants to keep us guessing until we get there
0: yeah it's very interesting yeah that's one of the things about a narrative is we don't always get all the questions that we might ask answered and if we do maybe not when we want them answered so yeah it's Like you said, chapter one, Jonah flees, and you're like, but why? Like, was he scared? Was he angry? Was he like, what's going on? And the narrator's like, no, he just he flees, and we watch him, and yeah, you you just have that question tantalizingly dangled there, just waiting for an answer. Yeah, we don't get there yet.
1: In this case, God's word is going to work on us not by giving us answers, by but but by pushing us to ask questions. Mm,
0: fascinating. Yeah, we'll get into that dynamic in a big way in a few weeks in chapter four as well, where it ends on a question. Yeah, Mm -mm -mm. yeah, hang out for that. Alright, we'll keep going. Uh, someone's asked, wasn't the name of God, Yahweh, wasn't that culturally unspeakable? So when the sailors call him by call God by that name, is that still showing that they've missed the point of who God really is?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And it's referring to uh, later Jewish practice, and still to this day, the practice of avoiding pronouncing the name of God. And so if you, you know, read... The Bible in Hebrew, for example, it will write out God's proper name, but it will make it clear that you're not supposed to say it. You have Mm. to say a different word. You just say, uh, my Lord, instead of saying his name. You don't say the name. And of course, this is related to the third commandment. Don't take my name in vain, Mm. says the Lord. And it's an effort to really make sure, you know, you can't take the Lord's name in vain if you never say the Lord's name. But... That's not what the Lord means there. You know, The Lord is talking about, uh, don't act contrary to the way that I have revealed myself to be. Don't take it as a light thing that I am your God. Mm. And when it comes to the actual uh, practice of saying God's name that he gives, Yahweh, uh, he introduces himself to his people as Yahweh. He tells them to call him that. And Abraham does, and Moses does, and David does, and the psalmist does. So uh, it's not a wrong thing to do.
0: Yeah, so that kind of, you know, you can't say the name, that's a later Jewish thing. Like, the actual characters in the Bible were very happy to call God by his name because that's the name God revealed himself by. Um, I find it really interesting that you come to the New Testament and you never see the New Testament writers explicitly write out Yahweh as God's name. Like, they they call God, um, well, God, or they use the Greek word the Lord yeah i've always found that interesting so i think i yeah totally get what you're saying like it's yeah the old testament people happy to say that but i find it interesting that that later jewish practice does seem to get carried on in the new testament and they're happy to just mm. they continue to call god lord and i've wondered a bit about that i mean they also call jesus lord so you have that kind of transfer of you know divine name gets kind of landed on jesus as the one who is the lord and yeah yeah i don't know do you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah, well, I guess just to say that there is uh, a new and very special and, and even more intimate way that God invites us to address him in the New Testament, which is as Father, mm. along with his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, when we are in Christ, we're invited to call on God as Father in this uh, profound and wonderful, wonderfully intimate way.
0: Yeah, so you move like from name to something even more intimate in the sense of relation there's a paternal thing going on yeah maybe interesting so. yeah anyway i'm sure there's more not want to say that but we will press on uh someone's asked at the end of the the story in journal one the sailors fear the lord they they make vows to him someone's asked what does it mean that they made vows is it a good thing to make vows to god particularly because we're sinful and what if we break our vows
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. A vow is a way of expressing a a lasting devotion to God. So beyond just in the moment, God, I'm very thankful to you. Thank God. I promise that I will continue to be thankful to you Mm. in these ways. It's a way of committing yourself to future activity with respect to God, uh, perhaps especially future sacrifices that you intend to make. It's not just, God, I'm so glad I'm going to sacrifice an animal, saying I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it again because I'm going to stay grateful to you, God.
0: Mm.
1: there's lots of provision uh, in the law that God gives to Moses for making vows lots of uh, description of how you go about doing that and different kinds of things to think about when you do there are a few examples in the old testament so Samuel's mum Hannah makes a vow to God and again there's a whole lot of it in the Psalms in fact Psalm 76 and verse 11 says make vows to God
0: Mm. that's not a
1: bad thing to do but The law does point out you ought to be careful when you make a vow to God. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 21 says, well, just watch it, because if you're going to make a a vow to God, you better pay that vow. Mm. And we have the big example in the Old Testament of uh, rashly making a vow, a vow which is ill-considered and ought not to have been made, which is Jephthah's vow that he makes in Judges chapter 11. Mm. So a fine thing to do, but be careful about
0: it. Yeah, like for us as Christians, like you think, that has a place like I feel like the New Testament doesn't say heaps about it um yeah what is it is there any space in our Christian lives for that I don't think we talk about it much if there is
1: I agree it's not something that we talk about very much but perhaps we have something similar when at the start of the year we uh undertake to say do a bible reading plan mm. uh, maybe We might think about making a commitment to God. God, I will, with your help, read your word each day this year. And you know, we might seek accountability for that. We might say, look, I've promised to God, so I'm going to get my friend to ask me each week, hey, are you doing that? Because you told God you would. Mm. So I can see that there might be a real benefit to us in making vows. But in line with God's word, we should only make a vow that we are serious about keeping
0: yeah helpful I wonder if we're if we're I mean I just think about reflecting on my own heart and I think like I think I'm so conscious of sin and the fact that I fall short so much that I sort of immediately discount any possibility that I would possibly live up to anything I've promised to God I wonder if we you know we can so um and I mean there's something right in that, right like yes we are sinful to the core but I wonder if we short circuit the process of actually like God saved me he's changing me he's Remaking me in the image of my creator, like you know, I Romans eight, like we have the capacity to please God in some sense at least. Now the spirit is in us. Like, are we a little bit pessimistic? Like, we don't want to make a promise to God because we know we're going to break it. But maybe by God's strength and the spirit, this will be the time we continue to serve Him. And yeah, yeah, I'm going to sell ourselves short in normal sell the spirit short, really, you know, sell his work in us short.
1: Yeah, I think for me, when I think about making vows to the Lord, I feel a nervousness around the idea of the effort to manipulate God, mm. where, you know, the kind of that sort of Homer Simpson sort of prayer, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Yeah, And that's not how God works. Uh, in fact, uh, Jephthah does seem to be doing something like that as we mm. read the story. It seems that he's a, he's a master manipulator and has a go at manipulating God. And we learn that that doesn't work out well. Mm. So that would definitely be something to be cautious of. We can't control what God will do by making promises that tantalise him in some way. That's just thinking wholly the wrong way about God. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, could a vow be made with uh, appropriate recognition that God is in charge and that I'm weak but still want to do the right thing?
0: Yeah. I think so yeah yeah and not being like uh this is my bargaining chip like if i do this you that's kind of like it makes me think we did um genesis uh 25 35 a couple of years ago at church and that's kind of jacob's vow he's like god uh, you know i'll if you will bring me back safely like then i'll serve you and you'll be my god kind of thing and god does seem to work for it, even though it's a bit of a bargaining thing but for us it's more like yeah god has saved us he's done everything out of thanksgiving and praise we might dedicate ourselves to him but it's, yeah not to manipulate him yeah, I think this has me a real pause for thought. I haven't thought about this enough in my own life, so that's mm. good. Thanks yeah. for the question. Yeah, I hope that's helped you out there too. All right. All right. Uh, someone else has asked, uh, if we see later on in the story of Jonah that the city of Nineveh does change to worship the Lord, um, this person points out uh, Nineveh is in modern-day Syria. Uh, why is it that Syria today is not a nation that worships the Lord?
1: It's a good question. I think we need to be quite careful about the assumption that uh, Nineveh is Syria, so these are in the same kind of geographical territory, but we can't make good, clear, strong connections between the political entities, the nations of biblical times, and modern-day nations. Mm. Just because uh, our political state uh, occupies the same physical geographical territory doesn't mean that there's a continuity there. It doesn't mean it's the same nation. And I think it's especially important that we recognize this with the state of Israel. The modern state of Israel was created in 1945. Of course, it occupies a a part, and controversially, part of the Mm. territory uh, that the Old Testament nation of Israel uh, was promised by God. But there's very important discontinuities between these two political entities. The modern state of Israel uh, was formed, uh, as we said, in 1945 and is not constituted on uh, the scriptures as, their, you know, as their, their founding constitution. There's real differences there.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I think we wouldn't want to say that the, the modern nation of Syria is Nineveh or is Assyria. It's in the same place, but it's really quite different. Mm. Now, as for the issue, why uh, don't we see a kind of a lasting repentance if they turn around? Well, why aren't they preserved? Yeah, we see in the book of Nahum we see a really a devastating prophecy against Nineveh, uh, where Nahum proclaims that Nineveh and Assyria will just be utterly destroyed, and uh, that word of the Lord does come true. Nineveh did fall to the Babylonian Empire in 612 BC. Hmm. So it seems what we have here in the story of Jonah, perhaps one way to think about this, is that there's a kind of a temporary repentance of wickedness and a temporary reprieve, but the pattern of wickedness over time continues, and so judgment comes. And in fact, we see a similar thing with Israel itself. Jerusalem comes... Under threat from the Assyrian Empire uh, in the seventh century and is spared, but later on falls to Babylonians mm. in the sixth century
0: yeah so you see what I've, I've heard some people call like this temporary revival in Nineveh, if you like there's a, you know a moment in time there's a generation who repent of the preaching of Jonah, but to see a long you know ongoing multi-generational transformation of the nation that's not what happens because they're Go back to their marauderous ways and that's not a word is not it marauding ways and god smashes them. that's that's what yeah i've always found that fascinating like you have two books in the bible that are directed at nineveh jonah and nahum they're like you know they're a few pages apart in your bible you flick over a couple of pages and it's like oh nineveh like wow it really fell apart like yeah from the heights of kind of this uh action genus yeah
1: I think Mm. perhaps it's worth actually just kind of suspending that for the sake of reading the book of Jonah itself and hearing the full force of what God has to say there. I think perhaps we should not be too quick to say, oh, well, we all know that they're going to get it in the end. Mm. We don't know that from the book of Jonah. And so it's right to take a beat and say, well, what does Jonah want to say to me about sin, about repentance, and about God's saving grace uh, before we attempt to fill in uh, pictures from elsewhere elsewhere in, in the Bible.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah, So hold that thought, um, or even put that thought off while we continue to work through Jonah. Either way, yes, we'll keep pressing on. Yeah, all right. We'll, we'll keep going through the rest of our questions. So the questions we've had so far, I guess, have been primarily working through some of the details of the passage. We've got a few questions now that are kind of, I guess, broadening things out and thinking a little more theologically about some of the issues Jonah 1 raises for us. Someone's asked, is it fair to say that God's mercy for Jonah and Nineveh aligns with God's ironic love for us by sending Jesus? So Peter, use that word ironic a bit, um, maybe part of the clarification thing, but yeah, is that a fair comparison?
1: Yeah, I think it's exactly the right kind of question to be asking. In the book of Jonah, we're dealing with the Lord, we're dealing with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mm. who's the same God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, who doesn't change. So we're dealing with a God who works the same way, the same God. And so I think it's the right kind of question to be asking. How, in the fullness of time, how, at the pinnacle of God's salvation plan, do we see this God acting in a similar way to extend mercy where mercy isn't deserved? And Mm -hmm. so it's right that we'd be thinking, gosh, that sounds like what God does in the gospel with us. Now, I think potentially we want to be careful with pushing the idea of irony too far. I definitely was guilty of saying irony about a thousand times (laughs) over the weekend. Mm -hmm. But, you know, irony can have a sense of, a slightly negative sense, uh, a sense of perhaps of... uh, Someone's heart not really being in it, yeah. and we certainly want to say, "Oh, God is like ironically saving us in the cross." Mm. Uh, it is surprising; it's a twist on what you'd expect. It's contrary to expectations in so many ways. Yeah. But we have a different word for that kind of uh, activity contrary to expectations. We call that grace. Yeah, but God treats us in a way that we don't
0: deserve. Mm. Yeah. So you want us to look carefully at. The story that Jonah is telling in the particular contour that's showing us of the surprising nature of God's love. Yeah, but don't push that too far. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yep, happy with that. All right, next question. Someone's asked, this is a a big one, and one that we tackle every now and again on the extras, does God want to save everyone? If he is God, surely he can save everyone.
1: Well, does God want to save everyone? He does. He tells us so. We Mm. read that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God is the God of all, the God of mercy and power and the Lord Jesus dies for all, for the sins of the world. So yes, God wants everyone to be saved. Now of course we have to hold that in tension with the fact that in the face of God's desire for all people to be saved, in the face of Jesus' death, which is for all, we see people bafflingly resist that grace, turn away from God, still refuse the gospel message of salvation. Mm. And uh, in the Scriptures, uh, there are, are various ways that the biblical authors Try to wrestle with what's going on there. But one important way is the teaching they have about God's choice, God's electing grace, Mm. that God uh, moves some to repentance and faith such that they are saved through the death of the Lord Jesus.
0: Mm. Yeah. There's obviously so many questions that fall out of that, and we uh, would love to explore... More of them. Um, part of the story of the extras is we already have in recent memory, and this this raises all sorts of questions about election and how God chooses and why He doesn't choose everyone. If you would like to dig more into those questions, let me encourage you to rewind on the extras a little and have a look at the the bumper triple part predestination and election special that Sam Russell and I did. This isn't about uh, September October last year. If you scroll back down our SoundCloud page, you'll see those episodes from last year. So. Rather than recap that two-hour discussion now, uh, feel free to go back and have a listen to that if you are interested to explore that more. But yeah, important question, so do go check it out. We'll keep rolling on, Peter. As Someone else has asked, how can we be satisfied with God's justice when evil and injustice continue to happen here on Earth?
1: Yeah, it's an important question, isn't it? Especially uh, when, as we were thinking about on Sunday, uh, terrible... Injustice continues to be a feature of our experience in the world both globally in the things we see and hear about in the news but also personally for many of us mm. in our lives. Uh, we uh, believe that God is the God of justice, he's the inescapable God, that he sees what happens and cares about it and yet and yet, the, the experience of Various kinds of suffering, but especially suffering as a result of the wicked behavior of others continues to be a part of our lives. Mm. This is a question that God's people have always wrestled with yeah you can see at many points in the Bible that's exactly the kinds of questions that God's people are asking. The kind of technical name for this kind of discussion is is theodicy We're talking about God's justice and how to think about God's justice in light of our ongoing experience of evil. Mm. It's possible to have quick and easy answers to these questions that, well, you know, God sort of does his best, but you can't expect too much. There are some things that are just out of his control.
0: Yeah. Conclusion, weak God. Why is he worth worshipping at all?
1: Yeah. Or, don't worry God works all things for good. I'm sure that there's a reason that that terrible thing happened to you. God's going to do something good. Just wait and see what it is.
0: Yeah. Conclusion. Evil's not really that bad, you know. It's going to be good for you in the end. So you sort of take away the evilness of evil and it's all going to be fine because it will turn out all right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we have to resist those quick and easy answers mm. because they're not good. They don't accord with our, the reality of our experience And what the Bible teaches us, that evil is evil. That it's not a good thing. And God is not prepared to make its peace with it, and neither ought we. And that God himself is good, does no evil. He is just. Mm. Important to resist those quick and easy answers. I think it's actually important as well to resist the kind of answer that the secular world might give. Well, we just live... In a universe, there is no God, there are only cosmic forces, and we're just a bunch of atoms bouncing off one another. So, you know, crying out for justice, where's it going to get you?
0: Yeah, some people get lucky, some don't. What can you do?
1: Yeah, it's not an answer, frankly, that you can live with. Mm. Uh, And it is not an answer that accords with our experience. It makes the cry for justice foolish. Yeah. Why cry out for justice in a blind universe? Uh, evil is not really evil. It's just what is. Mm-hmm. The Bible gives us answers which are not quick or easy. The Bible's answers have to do with waiting. Yeah, Waiting is a painful thing. And so that's the dynamic that we see, for example, in Revelation 6. Revelation really is a book all about how Uh, Awful and difficult things continue to happen, including to God's special people Mm. in the world. Uh, Evil continues and God's people get trampled. And we have this picture in Revelation 6 of the the prayers of the saints coming up to God. And they're calling out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The Bible doesn't really give us an answer, but it gives us that question how long? Yeah, and the, the presupposition of that question is, Well, God, you're too good to put up with this, you're too powerful, you're too just. So, how long can it continue? And we're left waiting, waiting for what we know God will do for a day of justice. We know that God will bring, we don't know when, but we know that He will.
0: Yeah, 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 so much stuff up in there. I think other things that come to mind is like the significance of the cross in this is just paramount like the cross is god's kind of declaration to the universe that he is just that he won't just sweep sin under the rug like if it were possible for god to just say oh yeah you've sinned but whatever that's that's fine you know that's just don't worry about it i'll oh, i won't worry anymore if you don't um no like if god didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all how seriously is he going to take sin like he will right every wrong the cross is the is the kind of the, the breaking in of God's justice into our world mm. it hasn't finished yet because injustice is still rampant, but God's kind of the writing's on the wall that God is going to take this seriously, and he will bring it into every wrong that that day we're still waiting for, but it's going to come because the cross is the the signal to everyone that the you know evil has an expiry date mm.
1: and the signal that God doesn't stand far off from our trouble mm. but that Jesus himself bears the terrible weight of injustice in its, its, its most awful form. What could be more unjust than yeah. putting God's innocent son to death? And yet he endures that and as we wait, our experience of unjust suffering is not one that's foreign to God. God himself knows what that feels like.
0: Yeah. That's another one of those ironic things, isn't it? The, it's the greatest act of injustice in history is the moment at which justice is done. Like, mm. there's, you know... There's the inverting expectations for you, yeah, happens everywhere, doesn't it? That's that's God's wonderful, surprising mercy and justice. Yeah. Lots more that you could say there, but I hope for you listening that's uh, the start of an answer. Uh we how how we long for that day? We pray come Lord Jesus, because we long for the day when evil and justice where evil will be dealt with and justice be done, and on that day we will be satisfied. So bring it on, I say. Yes, Amen. <laughs> One question to round us out. Uh, someone's asked, should we pray for troubles to come upon those who don't know Christ so that they turn to him?
1: It's a really good question.
0: Yeah, we were talking before, this is a fascinating one. I feel like we've got yeah, a bunch of things to say and no real satisfying answer, hey, but there's stuff to explore here. Yeah, what do you think, Peter?
1: Well, I think I probably have <laughs> in the past prayed for that. On reflection, I'm not entirely sure I should have. Mm. Tell us about that. Well, we know that God can and does work through uh, the troubles that people experience. Many of us might testify to having gone through Mm. tough times or found joylessness or dissatisfaction uh, with the things of the world, and that might have been a part of the way that the Lord has brought us to ask questions, to explore, and finally to come to know Him. And certainly... We might hope that something similar would happen for those we love, particularly if we see those we love coasting along, you know, having a great time, but thinking they don't know the Lord and they need to. Something needs to change here. Mm. We know that God does work that way. I think if we. uh, God works through trouble, but God, as we were talking about before, ultimately is not the author of evil and suffering. He's the good God who does good. He works through these things when they happen. But I think that calling on God to bring these things about, I don't think this is what God wants for his children. I don't think that's the the picture that we have of the kind of love that we are to have for our neighbor. So Mm. I think I'd definitely be content to pray that in trouble and strife, somebody's certainties would be shaken that they will be brought to repentance I'm not sure that it's completely right to go so far as saying God please bring trouble and strife
0: yeah that's fascinating so is part of the issue then like our own hearts in that like is there a risk that if, if I'm there just like just you know fervently calling on God like bring this person down like is you know how can I say that that's out of this pure motive for them to, you know, come to Christ and not out of just, you know, vindictive, I just really want this person to suffer. Like, that sounds like it might be part of the issue.
1: Yes, I think it could be, yes. But also misunderstanding who God is and how Mm. God works. God, when God allows for difficulty, for trouble, for calamity... To come upon people, this is his. Well, Isaiah calls it his alien work, his strange mm. work. This is not God playing his natural
0: game. Interesting. That that raises a whole bunch of questions in itself, doesn't it? Yeah, probably for another time. I mean, the other thought I have in this is, you know, praying for trouble to come upon one who doesn't know God. In a sense, you know, we're just talking about it, longing for the day when Jesus comes back, and we pray, Come, Lord Jesus that day will be trouble for all those who don't call on God. Like, when we pray, come Lord Jesus, aren't we sort of, at least indirectly, you know, praying for God's justice and judgment to come upon those who don't know Jesus?
1: Yes. Yeah, it's a serious thing. Yeah. To pray that.
0: I think it's easy to... Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how the Scriptures help you wrestle through that, but I think when we pray, your kingdom come... I think, in a sense, I don't think we're called to pray that primarily because we want to see our, you know, quote-unquote enemies kind of, you know, cop it. But, in a sense, I think that's true, isn't it? We want to see justice done. We want to see, like, sin is an offence against God, and we long to see God honoured in his name, no longer uh, maligned by those who reject him. And so it's right, I think, for us to long for justice in that sense. But I suppose that is different to longing for judgment upon this particular person who I actually want to come to know Jesus so they are spared from the judgment. So Yeah. This a different thing. But there's yeah. I feel like there's something there's something in there that I'm still trying to wrestle through. Yeah.
1: Certainly the Lord teaches us to, to pray for God's kingdom to come, which is as you say, to pray for the day of justice and mm. the day of the Lord. For the sinner is darkness and not light. That's a fearful day. So it's a serious thing that we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord also teaches us that if he delays in answering that prayer, if the day of the coming of God's final justice is delayed, this is God's forbearance. Mm -hmm. He hesitates because he wants people to be saved. Yeah, and he tells us that now is the favorable time. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time before the end comes. It's around the corner. But now is the day to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's crucial, isn't it? Yeah, God's patience means salvation. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Like we said, it doesn't seem like there's a clear answer coming out of all that. But we hope that's been helpful to wrestle through some of those questions about yeah, justice and prayer and the people we long to see come to know Jesus. Yeah, it's complex, isn't it? But yeah, there's yeah, lots there for us to chew on. So great questions, yeah. Really glad we got to chat through these today. Peter, to, to wrap us up, uh, where are we going this coming Sunday?
1: Well, hot on the heels of Jonah 1 is Jonah 2.
0: Stop the press. Yes. That's right, yes. It's
1: fish time. We're <laughs> going to talk about the great fish. That's what's going on. There's the prayer. If you get time to read Jonah's prayer. It raises all kinds of fascinating, perplexing questions about what's going on. I've really been enjoying wrestling with God's word this week, as I know you have as well, getting Mm. ready to preach. It's going to be a good one.
0: Very excited. So it'd be great for you to have a read of Jonah 1 verse 17 through the end of chapter 2. Be prayerfully thinking through what is God saying to us and come read to wrestle with that with us on Sunday. We're looking forward to it. We'll catch you then. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you.